Welcome to E2 Talks. It's a podcast in which we chat about the English language landscape, conversing about topics relevant to students like you. In this episode, Jay talks to Brad, an E2 expert teacher, about OET writing. They talk about the OET writing criteria, that is, the checklist the OET examiners use to mark your writing. By knowing what the examiners are looking for, you'll know how to get a high score. Hello everybody, my name is Jay. I'm one of the expert OET teachers here at E2 Language and E2 School. And today I'm talking with one of our fantastic OET teachers, Brad. Hello, Brad. How's it going? Fantastic. That's very good. I'm good. I'm very well. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Um, so today we're going to talk about OET. So this will be for all the medical professionals, the nurses and the doctors, etc. And we're going to talk specifically about OET writing because I understand that that's the most challenging part of the exam. Is that right? I would certainly agree with that, definitely. One of the most, anyway. Yeah. If not the most. Yeah, it certainly has a, as far as I understand, it has a quite a high uh, failure rate. So it'd be good to, what, what I want to do is go through the writing criteria or what the examiners look at after the candidates written their letter. I just want to go through each of those criteria and, and talk about them so the listeners can uh, know exactly what they need to do on test day. Of course, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it won't be all of it. I think getting a tutorial and joining our fabulous live classes is, is, a, is a better way to do it, but this will be certainly good information. But before we do that, um, do you want to just introduce yourself and talk about your background in OET? Yeah, yeah, sure. Look, look I've been basically, um, well, mostly face-to-face teaching um, for around about eight or nine years now with OET. Mm-hmm. Um, I did teach a few of the other uh, language tests as well, but OET was always my, my main thing. Um, I actually also work for OET as an education consultant as well. Um, so basically, I just provide them with a lot of, well, a lot of things to do with um, the uh, preparation provider program mainly, um, but also do a lot of creation um, for material and content as well. So um, creating a lot of the lessons for OET that you'll see on the website um, and creating a lot of their material. But you're yeah, also doing a lot of um, reviewing of the uh, preparation provider program, which into is a premium provider for. Yes. I'm very proud to say. Yes, we are. Oh, that's interesting. So you, you, yes, you work for the OET as well as yeah, us. I also do yeah, I do. Um, I also work occasionally for um, Victoria University as well for uh, the clinical assessment, for the medical clinical assessment. So I teach um, clinical communication for that as well. Okay, so okay, great. That's, that's good because it's helpful for the um, OET speaking as well. So, yeah, very helpful. Excellent. And how have you been finding working at E2 Language digitally? Do, uh, you, you're a live class teacher. How does that How does that go? Look, I was actually really, really surprised. Um I think I've probably mentioned to you before, I was a little bit hesitant in the beginning, just thinking, how is this actually going to work? Um, Because I was so used to the face-to-face, but it works extremely well. I was Mm -hmm. really, really shocked. Um, The students love it. Mm -hmm. They can, you know, type in a message to the chat anytime they want. They can, you know, put in their own little bits of writing. I can give immediate feedback on it just as I would in a class. So, Mm. yeah, I find it a really, really good way. But guess the best thing is the fact that in a classroom you've got what 10 15 people max yeah look the students can be in bed it doesn't matter where they are yeah. in the world and they can still sit here and listen to you know proper expert tutors giving them 
the knowledge that they need. So it's a no, it's a remarkable, remarkable technology. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, really good. That's good. Okay, cool. Well, let's get started on this criteria. Uh, it's it's going to change on August the 3rd, 2019. So if you're listening to this after that date, you don't need to worry about it so much, but it's good just to be aware of that. Um, firstly, let's just, what is cri criteria? Let's just define that first. Well, look, it's basically just what the OET is assessing you on individually, like individual components um, for the assessment. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, you might want to add to that. Did you want to? You look like you're about to add to that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I remember when I was in high school, right, and uh, I had to write an essay, and the teacher said, oh, you have to write it according to this cr these criteria. And I, I think I was in year 10 or something thinking, what a criteria. But, mm. yeah, it's so basically what it is is it's a checklist. You can think of it as a checklist that a teacher has or the OET assessor has. So they look at your writing and they look at the checklist and have you done this? Have you not done this? Have you done this, et cetera? And they give you a score on each of each of the components, as you say. Excellent. Yeah. So it's basically just assessing the students. Yeah, that's right. On in, in individual components of the actual writing test. Yep. And, and it's also how the OET standardize their marking, isn't it? Exactly. So, so exactly. it sort of eliminates or certainly reduces subjectivity of the assessor. Assessor, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And which is always a bit of a concern for students. They do think that it's one of the big misconceptions of language tests. So mm. it's a really good way to um to eliminate that. Yep, definitely. That's right. So there are rules. There are rules to the way that you write the letter. And if you follow these rules, you've got a much higher chance of succeeding. So exactly. cool. Let's go through them. So the first one is called purpose. And there are two mm. parts to purpose. The first one is that the purpose of the letter is immediately apparent. What does that mean? Well, look, this is something that has always been in the test. And a lot of the time people were making this clear, but in the wrong type of order. So generally speaking, people were putting it towards the bottom of the test. Mm. All we're doing there is just ask why you're writing to this person. So as we always advise, if you watch the live classes or anything like that, you read the writing task first you have to know why you're actually writing to this particular reader. So the purpose of that should be clearly stated generally in that introductory paragraph. Now, try not to get me wrong, this is, I don't mean just writing, I'm writing to refer. Mm -hmm. That is not a sufficient purpose. The referral is a purpose that is true, but the actual purpose is what you want that reader to do. Okay. So saying something like, um, I'm writing to refer Mrs. Johnson for your assessment and diagnosis of possible, I don't know, fibroids, something like that. So I'm writing to refer Mrs. Johnson for your assessment and diagnosis of possible fibroids. So you're giving that reader the knowledge of what you think that possible diagnosis is, the probable diagnosis of that patient, mm -hmm. but you're actually asking that reader to give their assessment and to give their diagnosis. So the reader knows what they need to do. Okay, yep. And if you can put that in the first sentence, that's showing the reader immediately what their actual role is, what they're doing for that patient. Gotcha. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, does that? Yep, that makes sense. So the OET examiner is going to be looking particularly at the, certainly at the first introductory paragraph, the first sentence, and they're going to be thinking, okay, is this purpose immediately clear to me as to what I have to do as the recipient of the letter? Exactly. And that's the thing that I want students to actually realize is that 
the assessors aren't thinking naturally normally as just an assessor. They're thinking as the reader of this letter. Mm -hmm. So they're actually taking on board what that reader is. And they'll think, okay, well, if I'm this person, if I'm this medical professional, what am I doing? Why am I reading this letter? Yeah. Simple as that. And if you can make that very clear and apparent right at the beginning, definitely you will fulfill the uh, purpose criteria. Criterion. Definitely. Criterion. Yes. Singular. Good. All right. Now, the second part of purpose, there are two parts. The second part says that the purpose of the letter is sufficiently expanded. Now, okay, so you've got your first sentence, which makes it very clear why you're writing the letter and what you want the recipient to do, for example. Uh, but then you've got the, you need to expand that out. Now, is that expanded in that introductory paragraph or is that expanded in a following paragraph? Generally, then you'll expand it throughout the following paragraphs. So basically, the rest of your letter, the rest of the body of that letter should be an expansion of that. And think of an expansion as just a, um, an explanation. So you're just further explaining it. So how did you arrive at that diagnosis? So say, for example, we use that, um, what I just said before um, about possible fibroids. Mm -hmm. So think of the test that that may have involved with. Um, think of what the patient presented with. Mm -hmm. You're basically using that information to expand upon the purpose of that letter. Good one. Okay. Yep. Good. Okay. I guess the word sufficiently is interesting there, but um, you know, that, I guess that depends on how much detail you include and how much detail you exclude, relevance, etc. But but we'll get to that probably. We'll get to that very soon. Yeah, yes. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that, will, that will be coming. Okay. So next is content. So we've moved away from purpose and now we're talking about content. There are three parts to content. The first part says the content of the letter is appropriate to the intended reader. So it's about appropriateness for the reader. What, what does that say to you? Well, again, look, that's why we advise straight away right at the beginning read that writing task first. You need to know who you're writing to. Mm -hmm. The information that you're giving in that letter obviously has to pertain to that reader. So for example, <clears throat> and again, I'll use the example of the fibroids. Say for example, you're writing to a gynecologist. Now the gynecologist is going to need to know the gynecological history. They're not going to need to know the fact that, you know, maybe some of the social history or something like that, um, that is completely irrelevant to what they need to know. So all it is, is really, as it says, making what you're giving to that reader appropriate for that particular purpose. So mm -hmm. always keeping that reader in mind. Good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So really, really, okay. Thinking about who you're writing to and putting yourself in that recipient's shoes and thinking, okay, what do I need to know? Exactly. Great. Okay. The next part says the content of the letter addresses what is needed to continue care or in brackets, key information is included, no important details are missing. Exactly. And look, you're thinking about what. So just try to think of the word what. What do you actually need this reader to do? What does the reader need to do to continue the care of this patient? Mm -hmm. Now, generally, this does land within the request um, type of thing. So the discharge plan. So it should be laid out very, very clearly in the case notes what is actually needed of this reader. So what does this reader need to do? Now, you've got to obviously make sure that no important details are missing here because that's a very, very vital aspect of this. You've got to also remember that they're not t testing you medically, they're testing your English, okay? So, so long as the um, important details are there, they are structured in a really nice way, um, in a very clear way, 
that's all that's actually needed. Okay. okay. So you just got to be very careful of what you're um, assigning to that during that five minutes of reading time. I think that's really, really important just to make sure that there's absolutely nothing missing. Okay, great. Now, the third part of content is that the content of the letter accurately represents the case notes. Now, is this about interpretation of case notes, Brad? I'd say yes, definitely. Look, it's it's how you interpret them. Um, look, you've got to remember to we we they're not students are not tested on their medical knowledge mm -hmm. again, and a lot of people do tend to not create so much, but well, I guess I guess it's a little bit of um creativity thrown in. So they might actually throw in their own medical knowledge, start using their own medical knowledge rather than just relying, relying completely on those case notes. Mm -hmm. The case notes are the ones that are providing you with all the information. So in other words, you do not need to use your own, inf your own knowledge, just rely on what is in those case notes itself. Mm. Yes, I've, I've seen that quite a bit. I've seen, actually, I shouldn't say quite a bit, but sometimes I've seen doctors, for example, making diagnoses that weren't part of the case notes or exactly. have, seeing some sort of cause and effect that wasn't there or um, mm. saying, okay, this patient needs this medication. It wasn't part of the case notes. So they would be exactly. marked down for that. Yes, um, and that is a hard thing. I mean, you've got to remember, I mean, some of the, the people doing OET, they're specialists. I mean, if you're, you know, if you come from a history of, you know, I don't know, you're a cardiothoracic surgeon or something, you have a lot of medical knowledge. So you might actually start interpreting your own information, your own knowledge within those case notes. And it's a big, big mistake because that's what I keep saying. You've got to remember they are only testing your English, not your medical knowledge. Mm, I guess the challenging thing is the, the way that the case notes are written, they're you know often abbreviated. There's sometimes use of symbols, um, certainly not uh, complete, sometimes phrases, but not complete sentences. So there is interpretation in working out what those case notes mean, isn't there? Definitely, definitely. And especially with a lot of the symbols that are thrown in, like arrows and things like that, some people do misinterpret that. Mm. So yeah, it's a very easy thing to do. But I mean, look, the more practice that you get, um, the more, you know, the different ki kinds of scenarios that you see. Um, that's, again, why I like the live classes, because we're always showing different types of case notes. Mm. Um, they get to see like, you know, a good broad range of case notes. And yeah, the, look, a bit of experience helps. In the test, I mean, actually practicing the test. Yes. Cool. All right. Third part of the criteria is conciseness and clarity. So conciseness just means that you're writing in a way that's efficient for the reader. You don't want to be overly flamboyant with your language. You want to get to the point. And exactly. cl clarity is obviously just being clear. So this is, this, is, this is different to how you would write an IELTS essay, for example, as far as I understand. In the IELTS essay, it's about showing off your vocabulary and showing off your sentence structures and that mm. sort of thing. But with OET, it's, it's quite different. It's about brevity and it's about clarity and about getting to the point. Exactly. And this is the thing where people, um, just as an example of that, people sometimes shy away of writing simple sentences mm. because they think everything has to be complex. Everything has to be, you know, you have to show off your grammatical structures. You have to show off this, show off that. It's the complete opposite. You should be using an appropriate range of whatever you're using, vocabulary, grammar, vocabulary, I'll try to pronounce that properly, grammar, um, according to the situation and according to the reader. So what it is actually appropriate for that case itself. Mm. Okay, so so the first part of conciseness and clarity is that the length of the letter is appropriate to the case and reader. 
Um, so the suggested length that the OET say is between 180 and 200 words, but as far as I understand, they're not strict on word count. Is that right? Exactly. It's, it's an approximate word count. So say, for example, the example that I generally give to students, say you've written 210 words or 220 words. Mm -hmm. now, if you've only included the relevant information, so you haven't included any of the irrelevant stuff that you don't actually need to include. So 220 words of all relevant information, you will still, no problem at all, pass with flying colors. If you, for example, have included it at 200 words, but you've included a lot of irrelevant information, that's going to go against you. So the approximate word count, look, if you're 175 words or if you're 210 words, you've included the relevant information, you've excluded all the irrelevant information, no problem whatsoever. Hmm. This is interesting. I had a, a, a student once, she was a doctor, very smart woman from Denmark, and mm. uh, she'd failed OET writing because she'd written a letter, I think in about 110 words or something, like very short, because she said, oh, in my hospital, that's how I write the letter. I just write it <laughs> yeah. very briefly like this. And I had to say, well, I'm sorry, but you may do that in your hospital, but on exam day, you need to expand. Actually, she was writing it too briefly, so she needed to expand out her uh, sentences, et cetera, to, to reach a sort of more appropriate word length. Exactly. That's a tad too concise. Yeah. And that's what um, it goes on. I'm not trying to skip over this one. The one that next one about the summarizing information mm -hmm. effectively, it kind of goes on to that. Um, sorry, I'll let you open that one yeah, up. Yeah, sure. So the next that. one is that the letter summarizes information effectively. What does that mean? Exactly. So in the, in the case of your, your, um, your student there from Denmark, I mean, you need to be able to summarize that information according again, according to the reader. Always keep that in mind, according to the reader. But you're summarizing that relevant information appropriately. Now, in the, friend, uh, in the case of your student there from Denmark, she's obviously summarized the case notes, but well, not very effectively mm. because of the fact that she's just shortened it too much. And this is the thing when it comes from practical experience like a, a hospital or whatever they're doing in the hospital, you do need to tweak that for OET. So it should provide a very good summary of all that information, but also very logically sequenced. You know, you've got paragraphs there. You're trying to, um, you know, keep one main theme per paragraph, things like that. And I'll get into that a bit more a little bit later. Um, but yeah, just trying to, to summarize the, only the appropriate information, but effectively so the assessor knows exactly what's happening, very, very easy to read. Mm. And again, also comes down to that um, showing off that you were mentioning before. Yeah, that's right. I think one thing here is that, so that doctor from Denmark, she had perfect English. It was, mm. certainly wasn't a language issue, but what she needed to do really was to actually do some preparation. Um, despite yeah. having perfect English, she needed to, for example, submit a letter through to us yeah. um, at a very much cheaper rate than the cost of the OET exam. And we would have very quickly given her feedback saying, okay, no, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to do this again. And it would have saved her. Well, she suffered a lot of stress actually, because Anyway, she, she obviously was very upset that she didn't pass. Yeah, um, but that's what I was going to say. It's not just the money. I mean, I know OETs are quite an expensive exam. I mean, it you know takes quite a long to get your grade back and things like that. Mm. So it also you know can delay things. It can delay things like getting the job that you need and things like that. So yeah, you're right. I mean, look, getting back a bit of um, like you know, a bit of information from a tutor or a bit of information from someone at E2, it can save you a lot of time, but it can also save you a hell of a lot of stress as well. So yeah, 
yeah, I highly recommend it. The, the amount of people that I've come across who have really good English, they have a very high level of English um, and they know that and they, they've always communicated in English. Um, take, you know, Northern Europe, for example, very, very high level of English, um, but they need more preparation. It comes down, that comes back down to the test taking skills itself rather than the language skills. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so the last part of conciseness and clarity is that the letter clearly presents information. Now, my understanding of this is that the OET assessor should be able to look at your paragraph, look at your sentences, and know exactly what they mean. They shouldn't be convoluted. They shouldn't be um, opaque, mm. right? The, the meaning should be immediately apparent as to what you're trying to say. You get, exactly. In, in other words, you like this whole criteria is about this conciseness and clarity, you get to the point. Yeah, exactly. And it's just nice and clear, very easy to read. No, you know, extra bits of information that really aren't related to the task itself. Yeah, clarity is just, I, th I think if there's one takeaway from all of this uh, that students should think about is just being as clear as possible. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I would definitely agree with that. Okay, next next set of criteria are genre and style. So let me try to explain genre. I'm going back to my high school English days here. <laughs> so a genre is the way that we use language in a specific context. So for example, if I'm writing a text message to a friend, I use a specific uh, type of language. It'll be very brief, it'll be quite, lots of slang, um, lots of contractions, etc. A different set of vocabulary. Um, but if I'm writing an OET letter, it has its own genre or style. So it'll use a sort of specific set of vocabulary and sentence structures exactly. And so this is a, a, a medical professional letter, so it's going to have its own genre and style. So the first part is the letter is clinical and factual. So do you want to have a crack at that one, Brad? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it comes back clinical and factual. I mean, you're again, you're using the case notes. You're not using your own interpretation of those case notes or your own medical knowledge, I should say. The information basically just should be suitable for that intended audience, as, mm. as, as you were saying before. So you're using appropriate tone and register. So basically, look, it has to remain clinical and factual. You're not including any judgment. And that's a mm. big do and I think judgment is a very very big word so you're not using your own interpretation your own not interpretation yeah, your own judgment you're not putting your own judgment onto this you're using those notes notes you're writing very very factually according to those notes gotcha okay because you might have a patient who for example is an alcoholic and you might have a personal judgment against this person but exactly. you have to yeah, keep that to yourself and just write in a factual way about exactly. this patient yeah, and you are dealing with a lot of um, different types of scenarios here too. I mean, OET doesn't really hold back on scenarios. You get things like, you know, alcoholism and STDs and drug-affected people and all sorts of stuff, exactly the same as you would in real life. So, yeah, you have to be the same, again, as you would do in a hospital or in a, a real-life situation. Just, you know, keep your judgment to yourself. Yep, good. Okay, next part is the letter is appropriate to the reader's discipline and knowledge. This is interesting. And this, again, comes back to how important it is to read the task yes. and to understand and to keep in mind throughout the whole exam who it is you're writing to and why. Exactly. So exactly. discipline. So obviously that means you're writing to a physiotherapist, for example. Yep. You keep that person's discipline uh, in mind. And knowledge, because it is possible 
correct me if I'm wrong, that you may have to write a letter, for example, to parents at a school or something like that. Is that right? Exactly. So you've got to, again, as you said, just keep that reader in mind, know who you're writing to. If you're writing to a, um, a specialist or some type of someone with specialist knowledge, you can use appropriate language for that. If you're writing to someone without that medical knowledge, a complete layman, you need to adjust that language for that reader. And for that, just saying that as well, if you are writing to a specialist, you have to try to keep that as it says, keep that reader's discipline in mind, you're not talking down, you're not condescending, you're not being patronising to this specialist. The specialist has a lot more knowledge generally than the person writing the letter. Mm. So you have to write that appropriately. You're not ordering a specialist what to do. Mm. You're advising them and asking for their further assessment, for example. So you've got to write in an appropriate way for that. So you're not actually talking down to the person that you're writing to. And it's the same with a, if it is a, a layman, say, for example, a parent or a, um, a school teacher, a principal at a high school, someone without that medical knowledge, some type of carer. You're not talking down to the patient, but you're explaining what that medical terminology means in a very easy to, to understand format. Mm, interesting. I imagine there'd be a lot of use of modal verbs here, like might and could yeah, and exactly. may, for example. Very good point. Okay, so the last part of genre and style is that the letter uses technical terms, abbreviations, and polite language appropriately for the reader. So technical terms, again, if you're writing to the parent of a, a child who has head lice, for example, you want to keep all of the technical terms out of your letter, basically. Exactly. Um, abbreviations. Actually, let's, let's talk about abbreviations. This is a question that pops up a lot. So what's, <laughs> yes, yeah. what's your take on abbreviations? Look, I, the advice that I usually give to students is use only what is appropriate to the reader, obviously. Now, that's a very general statement and really hard. I should probably try to explain that a little bit more in depth. But say, for example, something very common, something like uh, BP for blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Now, everyone knows what BP is. It doesn't matter if you're a, a teacher at a high school or if you're a, a, a medical professional. No problem at all. But when you're getting into the real, really strong medical terminology, you've got to remember who you're writing to. Mm -hmm. Now, you can use abbreviations if you're writing to a specialist. There's nothing wrong with using abbreviations, but don't overdo it. You can't just completely abbreviate the letter. And I've seen this before, from, especially from doctors. I'm sorry, I feel like I'm picking on doctors today. Um, all professions do it, definitely, but doctors generally have to deal with a lot more medical terminology than other professions. Um, or dentistry, for example, mm -hmm. they do the same. So you've just got to remember what you might understand as a medical professional, the person that you're writing to may not. So you just try to, even if you're writing to a fellow professional, try to limit those abbreviations, um, you know, spice it up a little bit, put in a, a few that are written out completely so it's very, very easy to read um, and put in a few medical abbreviations as well. So just having a nice balance is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think if... if one of the things you have to think about is, are the abbreviations you're using universal or are they just exactly. just from your country and your healthcare context? Well, that's actually a really good point because mm. it's not just the countries. I mean, if you look at Sydney, for example, mm -hmm. now I've probably worked at about, I think, six different hospitals in Sydney. Now, every single hospital uses their own mm. abbreviation. And so you end up with a very sort of disjointed list of abbreviations and some are appropriate, some are not. Um, and the registry bodies always put out um, 
what is appropriate and what's not. So a lot of the older abbreviations are actually no longer appropriate because of the fact that they can be misinterpreted. And that's just in hospitals. So then it goes regional. Then you've got to think, you know, throughout the country. Mm. Then you've got to think throughout the whole world and different countries using different abbreviations. It gets very, very confusing. So I would just try to stick with the most common. Yeah. Uh, in the actual case notes, if an abbreviation is not very common, it will be explained to you. So there's no problem with that. Mm-hmm. Little ones like blood pressure, for example, probably won't. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. I agree with that. I think if, you, if you're if you about to write an abbreviation into your letter to the recipient and you're not sure if it's that common or that universal, I say just write it out fully. Don't use the abbreviation. Exactly. Yep. That's good advice. Next one is, um, we're going to stick on this last criterion here is polite language appropriately, because this can be, you can write a letter that's impolite or, or you know, uses slang, uses too many phrasal verbs, for example. Um, but you can actually be overly polite, can't you? Yes, definitely. And you do see this particularly, um, yeah, certain cultures throughout the world will actually write in an extremely polite manner, Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit above what is the norm, so to speak. Yeah, you're right. So using a bit of, um, look, polite language, obviously, you need to be, again, appropriate for that reader. Um, As I was saying before, like if you're writing to a specialist, you don't talk down to that specialist. Mm-hmm. If you're writing to a um, to a teacher or to a to a parent, you're not talking down to the person, but you're also not. How do I say? Um, not kind of, you know, I want to say sucking up. Mm. Uh, Sycophantic is the technical that's term. That's a beautiful <laughs> word. Yeah, there you go. people can start googling that right well <laughs> right now. But yeah, you don't want to be doing that. You just want to. It's just a normal. Formal, keep the formality as well. It, it mm. does get formality. Um, you have to remember that you are writing a formal letter here. So, as you said, you're not using things like phrasal verbs or, you know, slang, especially. My God, um, text speak type of stuff. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think if people are confused about uh, what is appropriate politeness, I think just looking at the sample letters, the official sample letters, but also the uh, sample letters on E2 language, for example, just to sort of yeah, see. Definitely. You know, some of those phrases um, to introduce the first paragraph and to sign off at the end, for example, that sort of stuff. Well, that's actually just something that we're, we're putting into the um, to the live slides now, to the live classes. Like it, it's trying to get that little bit of, um, you know, how to request something appropriately mm-hmm. um, and what type of language to use when you're requesting something, um, particularly if you're writing to a specialist, for example, or to, you know, another, um, to, a, to a layman. You need to be able to, to, to request ongoing care appropriately mm-hmm. using polite language. That is something that we've got into the slides now, um, which I think the students are, you know, really um, warming to. They really, they really enjoy it. Nice. Good. Okay. The one, two, three, four, fifth set of criteria, we've got uh, two more to go, is organ- this one's quite straightforward. It's organization and layout. Let's just do all of this together. So the letter organization is appropriate, logical, and clear. The letter Mm -hmm. highlights key information. The letter subsections are well organized, and the letter is well laid out. Do you want to make some comments on organization and layout? Yeah, look, I mean, look, layout of the letter, it should be written very formally. Um, You can see from all the sample letters how they've got, you know, the addressee up the top and the address and, um, you know, dear Dr. Smith, the salutations written really well. You've got all of that type of stuff that you're getting from that writing task and just laying it out appropriately for that reader. 
So there are a lot of misconceptions about this as well. People think, you know, if you add a comma after dear Dr. Smith or should you not add a comma, the assessors don't care about things like that. What they want to see is a nice, organised letter, clear distinctions between the paragraphs and the priority being put up the top. So in other words, prioritising your letter appropriately as well. So the key information has to be in there. It should be prioritised. The paragraphs should have a very distinct theme or a very distinct um, idea behind them. They're not, you know, going from admission to perhaps a bit of background, to a bit of social, to a bit of request. You can't put all of that into one paragraph. It should be very, very easy to read. So the letter should be laid out in a very logical, very clear, very concise format. Yep. Maybe you could add something to that. I, I think that summarises it, but you can... By yeah. all means, add something to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right. I think uh, I think that second part, the letter highlights key information. You know, if there is an important thing, it shouldn't be buried in your letter. It should be easy, distinct to see, which probably means that you're bringing it towards the top of the letter, certainly yeah. towards the top of the paragraph. Exactly. Um, and if there is that urgency to the letter, I mean, some of these times, you know, perhaps you're writing to a registrar at an emergency room or something like that. Just say that's an example. You're writing to a registrar. They're the registrar of the emergency room. What does that person need to know? Do they need to know the social background of where the, you know, the patient's parents might be living at the time or if they own a cat or a dog? Or do they need to know what is actually wrong with that patient right now? So you've got to think about if it's logical, if it's easy to read, and if it gives across that information to that reader immediately. Mm. This is a good time to talk about the use of templates because I know a lot of students... And certainly there's a lot of stuff on the internet which is a bit scary saying, okay, this is how you structure an OET letter. It should have an you know, introductory paragraph followed by medical history, followed by this, followed by this, followed by this, and that's how you structure it. That is wrong. That is absolutely wrong. Can you tell yeah. us why that's wrong and why it's well, so wrong? <laughs> my God. I mean, look, the amount of students who do that, and I know that people do that for other types of language tests, and it comes across all the time. It is so easy to pick. The assessors can spot a template a mile away and you will not pass it. The thing is, every single case in OET is different. Yeah. So if it is different, how can you possibly use a template? You're writing to different people every single time. People have actually said to me, students have said to me before, but what about if you have a template for writing to a community nurse? And then what about if you have a template for writing to a principal at a high school? What about if you have a template for this, for that? You cannot do it. Every case is different. All the case notes are different. Every patient's situation is different and every reader is different. Mm. The purpose of every letter is different. So I cannot emphasize enough, please do not use a template format. You are not going to pass this. Absolutely. For example, in the task, if you're writing to a patient's GP, as in that patient knows the GP, then mm. the case notes that you include, the way you structure a letter will be completely different, not completely, but largely different compared to if you're introducing that patient to the GP for the first time. Without a doubt. And a perfect example because of the fact they are a very, very unique situations and you are going to write in a different way. You have to write in a different way. Yeah, you have to be flexible. That's the, the takeaway point yeah. for, for that one there. Okay, the last one, of, <laughs> this is my favorite, language. Okay, let's, let's put all this into one. So 
There are a number of criteria for language. The overall language use makes meaning clear. The vocabulary is appropriate, so the meaning is clear. The grammar is accurate, so the meaning is clear. The sentence structures are accurate, so the meaning is clear. The spelling is accurate. The punctuation is accurate. So two things there is accuracy, obviously. Accuracy, and, yeah. And the second one is meaning, uh, the clarity of meaning. Meaning is clear. So yeah. I, I, I'm a big fan of grammar. I enjoy teaching grammar, and I think... We do a, a very good job, especially in our one-on-one -on -one tutorials and our writing feedback of giving uh, personalized feedback on students' grammar in their writing. Well, but they need that, yeah. They, they, they need that's it. That's the one thing that's hard. In I mean, in a live class, we do uh, go through quite a few um, things on grammar as well. So we do touch on grammar without a doubt. But, yeah, they need those tutorials because, yeah, individual feedback, you can't get past it. You really can't. That's right. This is a good opportunity to plug uh, E2 School as well. So we have a new website. So there's E2 Language for test prep. And we also have www.e2school.com, which focuses on fundamental English language skills like vocabulary and grammar and pronunciation, etc. So if anybody is struggling with sort of, you know, prepositions, articles, verb tenses, or uh, maybe even pronunciation, uh, you can go across to e2school.com and do some of our sign up for some of our courses there, which would be very helpful. It is really helpful. I, I mean, it is a really good thing to have because the amount of students who will say, but where can I practice this? How can I practice that? Exactly. You need a platform to be able, I don't mean to keep plugging, but you know what I mean? You do need a platform to be actually go over and brush up on all the, um, you know, well, phrasal verbs, for example, things mm. like that bits of grammar that you actually um, might be missing out on. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's one thing to be able to point out the mistakes that somebody's making, say you're not using articles correctly. It's another thing to actually send them somewhere meaningful where they can actually improve. So that's okay. that's the purpose not, not of just on, school. Yeah, that's right. And it's not just on writing either. I mean, they need that for speaking as well. That's why I mentioned the phrasal verbs before. That's right. You need to be able to be able to speak, you know, quite naturally and fluently. So yeah, pronunciation tips, you know, things on intonation, stress, all that type of stuff, absolutely invaluable. Cool. All right. Well, we've actually gone through all of the criteria. So those things that we spoke about are what the OET examiners look at in your writing. That's what they're, they have the exact same checklist and they're looking at your letter. They're looking at the checklist and they're going, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. So can I just point out one sure. thing too, with that language thing, just before we um, move on, I just want to really, I mean, ac it does say accuracy the whole way through, but appropriacy as well. It needs to be appropriate. So it's not just about people stress so much about the grammatical side of the letter. Mm. You can see that it's actually quite evenly dispersed throughout the criteria. It's not like the assessor's focus is not completely on grammar. Um, far from it. Actually. That's right. That's right. And as long as it's appropriate, you mentioned earlier about not showing off. That is a really, really good point. I think if people can just take away the fact that their grammatical structures, their vocabulary needs to be specific and appropriate to that particular reader. So mm. it's basically all about improving readability yes. for that reader rather than just focusing on, you know, have I used enough complex sentences, for example. Yep, very different to an IELTS writing test. That's for very sure. Very different. Cool. All right, Brad. Um, 
I think that's all. I think we've covered yeah. that quite well. But of course, knowing the theory is one thing and practicing is quite another thing. So I do encourage everybody to sign up to E2 Language and uh, certainly join our live classes. They're fabulous, as well as think about getting some writing feedback. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The more, the merrier in the writing classes, as far as I'm concerned. And I do love it when students participate, when they start, you know, putting their own comments into the chat. Absolutely love it. Great. Cool. Well, thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks again. See you soon. See ya. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to E2 Talks. Remember to check out e2language.com and choose one of our OET courses. Thanks. <laughs>